This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Hi, listeners. It's Carter, here to tell you about an incredible event celebrating the launch of ParCast's first book, Cults. On July 13th, crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together for a night of true crime to remember. And you can be part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and so much more. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. It's a wonderful cause and an evening perfect for any true crime fan. But time is running out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. So don't wait. Sign up at parcast.com slash cults. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features mild language and discussions of racism, murder, and suicide that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Unsolved murders can feel like an invitation for amateur detective work. But that doesn't always mean we should. Because when clues don't show the full picture unfair biases can slide into the gaps. Like in the case of the Veterans Administration Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. After a peak in deadly respiratory arrests swept the facility in the summer of 1975, authorities were quick to build a case against two nurses who'd immigrated from the Philippines. Activist groups stood up to defend the young women from racist scapegoating, while others claimed that eyewitness testimony held true. As two sides waged a spirited public war, one question stood. If these two nurses didn't attack dozens of US veterans, who did? 
This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to provide Alistair with some medical insight into the 1975 mystery murders in the Ann Arbor, Michigan VA hospital. This episode is the best definition of a true whodunit. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our one-part episode on the Ann Arbor Hospital murders, 10 sudden deaths at one of Michigan's veterans' facilities during the summer of 1975. Today, we'll delve into the strange flurry of respiratory attacks and track how nurses Filipina Narciso and Leonora Perez became prime suspects. The fumbled federal investigation reminds us just how high stakes guesswork can be. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. A quick note before we start the story. Patients' names have been changed throughout to respect their privacy. In late July 1975, a 61-year-old farmer checked in to Ann Arbor's VA hospital. We'll call him Steve. Steve had just undergone a surgery to remove a tumor from his right lung. Steve's surgeon commented on how well things had gone. He'd be out of the hospital in no time. Or so he was led to believe. The morning after his procedure, a red light flashed through the corridors. Beepers blared. Staff members sprang into action as they realized it was a Code 7. All hands on deck. Steve had gone into respiratory arrest, the clinical term for when a patient stops breathing. A team of doctors and nurses rushed to his bed in the ICU and began intubation to resuscitate him. Intubation is a delicate task, especially when dealing with an elderly patient. For one, our bodily tissues become less elastic as we age, which increases the risk of tracheal damage and perforation when we insert the endotracheal tube. Luckily for Steve, he was attended to very swiftly, and intubation provided immediate respiratory support. The medical team had to work very efficiently in this scenario, and also very carefully. As seconds turned to minutes, color returned to Steve's ashen face. The rescue had been a success, but there was still a glaring concern. Steve had no underlying condition that would have caused a respiratory arrest. According to Zibby O'Neill and S. Martin Lindenauer, authors of the book Paralyzing Summer, Steve's operation the previous day 
had gone perfectly. So the doctors were forced to dismiss the arrest as a fluke. They took out his breathing tube one day later on the morning of July 27, 1975. Steve seemed to be in perfectly stable condition, able to breathe on his own, take short walks and eat food. Then, around 5 p.m., Steve stopped breathing yet again. Like before, medical staff rushed in, sliding another tube down his throat and using the ventilator to force air into his lungs, saving his life. Doctors were dumbfounded by the deja vu. One unexplained respiratory arrest was admissible, but two in the course of a couple of days. It made no sense. Especially when mere hours later, another patient, who we'll call Harry, suddenly stopped breathing too. Doctors and nurses quickly intubated him, saving his life. But 24 hours later, Harry was also struck by a second respiratory emergency. They'd no sooner stabilized Harry when doctors realized Harry's hospital neighbor Chris was struggling to breathe. Within minutes, his skin had turned blue. This blue color was likely a sign of cyanosis, which happens with poor blood circulation and the resulting oxygen deprivation. This is because healthy red blood cells turn blue without a sufficient supply of oxygen, and this discoloration becomes noticeable in someone's skin. Chris's bluish appearance likely indicated that his blood oxygen levels dropped to below 85%, and without quick intervention, he may have endured lasting organ damage, along with cardiovascular, pulmonary, and cognitive impairment. He also could have easily died. This is because our tissues rapidly degrade without oxygen-rich blood, and the extent of the damage is really a function of time. The level of potential harm also depends on a patient's overall health. Ultimately, though, Alistair, with a long enough period of respiratory arrest, cyanosis is something to be expected in the absence of fast treatment. Given Chris's condition, this situation was a bit more delicate than the prior respiratory arrests. Thanks to their emergency response teams, both Harry and Chris were spared. Even still... A grim feeling set in as staff members noted the similarities in the cases. They were too alike to be a mere coincidence. Worry only grew stronger on July 30th, just four days after the strange respiratory attacks began. Around 9.30pm, staffers checked on John, a double amputee being treated for kidney disease and diabetes. John struggled to breathe, and his heart rate slowed. But this time, resuscitation attempts weren't successful. John died within the hour. He was the first patient to die of a respiratory emergency at the Ann Arbor VA hospital that summer, and the beginning of a deluge. Between July 26th and July 31st, 1975, a record 11 respiratory arrests took place at Ann Arbor VA Hospital. That was more than they typically saw in a month, condensed into just six days. The sudden spike couldn't have come at a worse time for the workers at Ann Arbor Veterans Hospital. Like many others at the time, the Veterans Hospital was desperately understaffed. Following World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, America's veteran population skyrocketed. 
so did their need for medical care after injuries in combat. Unfortunately, there wasn't an equal increase in American healthcare workers. To fill gaps in patient care, the US began accepting medically trained workers from overseas. This drew staff into Ann Arbor from around the world. Their chief of anesthesiology, Dr. Ann Hill, was born in Ireland. And two of their nurses, Filipina Narciso and Leonora Perez, were immigrants from the Philippines. Both Narciso and Perez were experienced nurses back home, but at the time, certain medical professions across Southeast Asia were paid notoriously low wages. Now, they had a chance to make better lives for themselves, a chance to achieve the American dream. Married to a Filipino man with one child, Perez was already well on her way. Narciso was single, but likely held dreams of growing a family alongside her career. So 29-year-old Narciso and 30-year-old Perez felt like they'd hit the jackpot when they found employment within the US hospital system in the early 1970s. Both began working in the ICU of the Ann Arbor VA Hospital in June 1975. However, work at the VA hospital probably left little time for family. And that American dream soon became an American nightmare. Despite efforts to keep the facility running, the VA's patient numbers were growing untenable, even with added help. The nurses were constantly overworked, so it would be understandable if, alongside the colleagues they'd been brought in to relieve, Narciso and Perez were also reaching a breaking point. Understaffed hospitals place enormous pressure on workers, and this inevitably ends up resulting in compromised patient care. This is something I've experienced firsthand while working in hospitals and also in my private practice. In medical establishments with high activity, even a small decrease in staff has the potential to create large-scale issues. In my own practice, it may only take one absent employee to slow the wheel, and this forces everyone else to pick up the slack. This ends up being an ever-present issue that healthcare professionals must contend with, and it can provoke overworked medical employees to cut corners, which puts patient lives in jeopardy. Hospital staffers at the Ann Arbor VA likely wondered if this was the case in the summer of 1975. Perhaps the understaffing was causing exhausted healthcare providers to screw up. Because in the months before the respiratory arrest spiked, a petition circulated among the nurses. It read, quote, There is a critical shortage of registered nurses at the Veterans Hospital. The petition continued to list widely held frustrations about understaffing and burnout, made worse by the sense that doctors and administrative executives didn't care. But the petition wasn't the only thing circulating the hospital that year. Amid the respiratory arrests, there was a nasty rumor. Someone in the hospital was causing the medical emergencies on purpose. Coming up, a doctor investigates the latest attacks and the hospital calls in the FBI. 
Hi, listeners. It's Carter with some truly exciting news. To commemorate the launch of Colts, ParCast's first book, Crime Junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together on July 13th for an in-person and virtual experience you do not want to miss. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature a live Q&A about the book, an exclusive meet and greet, and a discussion on all things true crime. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. It's an amazing organization near and dear to both Ashley and Max, and another great reason to enjoy this wonderful night. And it's just days away, so visit parcast.com slash cults to register today. You can also catch the event virtually on Spotify Live if you are unable to join us in person. All attendees will get a signed copy of the book and a night they'll never forget. July 13th is fast approaching, so be sure to join Ashley Flowers and Max Cutler for a very special evening celebrating the release of ParCast's new book, Cults, all for an incredible cause. Register today at ParCast.com cults. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. At the start of August 1975, Ann Arbor VA hospital workers decided to talk to the acting chief of staff, Dr. Dwayne Fryer. They hoped to hire more nurses to the understaffed facility. But this wasn't just about employee burnout. Patients were in danger. In the last six days of July, a record 11 patients had suddenly and inexplicably stopped breathing, and one had died something had to be done. Still, Dr. Fryer's hands were tied. Of course, he supported the hiring of more nurses, but the hospital's limited budget meant there was only so much he could do. As for potential malpractice by someone on payroll, the prospect seemed inconceivable, and a brief lull in Code 7s may have allowed him to tuck away his worry. Unfortunately, doing so would have been dangerously premature. On the evening of Saturday, August 2nd, scorching heat followed by thunderstorms foreshadowed the grim events to come. Not one, but three patients coded before midnight. Days later, on August 6th, two more respiratory arrests rocked the ICU. On the 8th, there was one. Then... On August 12th, chaos erupted. Four patients incurred respiratory arrests within just two hours. Luckily, they all survived. But that same day, yet another patient was discovered in active respiratory arrest and without a pulse. 
While a team worked to revive the patient, a shriek pierced the hallway. There's another one in here, a nurse screamed. Fellow nurses entered the hospital room of a patient in his 40s who was actively receiving mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. After feeling for a pulse and coming up empty, the medic yelled for the epinephrine to be delivered from a nearby crash cart in the latest patient's room. Epinephrine is a drug typically used to restore heart functioning when a patient goes into cardiac arrest and is easily administered directly into an IV bag. It's critical to get a patient's heart beating immediately prior to intubation, and these two interventions need to happen concurrently. It's also possible that once someone's heart regains a normal rhythm, their breathing issues may resolve on their own. This would be true in the case of a heart attack, for example, where dysfunction of the heart is the clear root issue. However, there's no guarantee that jump-starting someone's cardiovascular system would restore respiration, so it's a big question mark if the source of the breathing complication is undetermined. It's critical to remember in all of this that the heart and lungs are a team, and one can't function properly without the other. Despite this, though, a flatline pulse always needs to be the first order of business in reviving someone, as it's the most urgent problem. As the crises piled on, doctors grew increasingly worried. Meanwhile, morale continued to sink. Nurses were tired, and the staffers' requests for help seemed to have gone nowhere. On August 14, 1975, those frustrations reached a peak. A single RN and medical aide covered 31 patients. For reference, in the state of California today, one intensive care nurse is required for every two patients. That night, the Ann Arbor nurse and aide performed their usual rounds, but they couldn't have eyes everywhere at all times. A little after 10 p.m., the nurse found a patient dead in his hospital bed. Just a couple of hours prior, he'd been in good condition. A few minutes later, they found another patient who'd been stable, now dead. Between July 1st and mid-August 1975, dozens of patients at the Ann Arbor VA hospital had suddenly stopped breathing. Close to 10 of them had died, and tragedy showed no signs of stopping. Each loss left the lingering question, how exactly were these people dying? The hospital's head of anesthesiology, Dr. Anne Hill, decided to take a closer look. Maybe the answers were there and the healthcare workers in the room just didn't know what to look for. She'd examined the next respiratory arrest patient herself. Dr. Hill didn't have to wait long. On August 15, 1975, Dr. Hill witnessed three respiratory arrests. She eventually determined two things. Each patient had received an IV injection, and visible adverse reactions emerged within minutes that were identical across the board. These reactions included difficulty breathing followed by a respiratory arrest. The patients also recovered at an unusually quick pace after receiving emergency care. These sudden onset symptoms heavily imply that some type of drug was administered, causing them to involuntarily stop breathing. 
Based on the symptoms and Dr. Hill's findings, it looks like these patients might have been getting dosed with barbiturates, benzodiazepines, or opiates, like morphine or Demerol, for example. In high enough doses, all of these drug classes depress the autonomic nervous system to the point that respiration can completely cease. It's also possible that patients were getting large amounts of muscle relaxants or neuromuscular blocking agents, which are drugs that can directly affect those skeletal muscles involved in respiration. With enough of these medications, someone's breathing muscles can easily slow to a halt, pushing them into respiratory arrest. It additionally seems clear that any of the potential drug culprits would have been short-acting, given the patient's speedy revival after their emergency care. Of course, there are myriad other things that could have caused these symptoms, and it's tough to say for sure without a first-hand exposure. While some Ann Arbor doctors considered contaminated IV bags, Dr. Hill had a grimmer theory. The IV bags were intentionally tainted by a drug that caused muscle paralysis. A drug like Pavilon. Testing her hunch, Dr. Hill gave one of the intubated respiratory arrest patients the antidote for Pavilon. Since muscle relaxants can be risky, especially given in high doses, it's important for anesthesiologists and any physicians to have an antidote on hand. Most medications do have antidotes or some combination of medications that'll reverse the drug's effects or symptoms. Pavilon is a drug that slows both heart and lung functioning, so the antidote here would need to stimulate both of these vital organs. This antidote for Pavilon is a combination of two anticholinergic drugs, neostigmine and glycopyrrolate. Anticholinergics work to inhibit the action of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, which causes the heart and lung to slow down. A treatment like this would halt any breathing difficulties. And halt they did. The patient's breathing issue was quickly resolved. But now that Dr. Hill knew the how of the emergencies, she had another major question. Who was attacking patients? Dr. Hill brought her findings to Dr. Fryer, who quickly determined this was beyond his authority and his boss's authority. In fact, because Ann Arbor VA was a federally owned facility, this was a job for the FBI. Agents organized a team, but no sooner had they arrived than the respiratory arrests suddenly stopped. It seemed the killer knew the chase was on. The FBI agents interviewed what seemed like hundreds of hospital workers, from top doctors to janitorial staff. They exhumed the bodies of suspected victims who had died. Then they pulled ICU schedules to look for patterns. Who was on duty when the emergencies occurred? But the most damning information came from the survivors. We'll call the first witness Joe. On August 15th, Joe sat in his hospital bed, ready to help the doctors figure out what was going on. He was just 49, but still regaining his strength after a respiratory emergency earlier that day. At the foot of his bed stood one of the doctors who'd helped save his life, Dr. Lucy Goodenday. She asked Joe to move his head as a way of signaling yes and no, since he was still unable to speak. Then, Dr. Goodenday's questions began. Did he receive any medication before his respiratory arrest? 
Yes. Did he remember who'd given it to him? Yes. Did he know their name? Again, he nodded. Yes. At this, Dr. Goodenday handed Joe a pen and held a piece of paper, willing him to recall who'd been in the room just before he stopped breathing. He scribbled on the paper as Dr. Goodenday looked on in stunned silence. Joe had written a name, one that told her everything she needed to know, even if she didn't want to see it. Coming up, dark clues spark a ruthless investigation. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere, and then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Now, back to the story. In the summer of 1975, doctors and the FBI finally had an answer to the mysterious respiratory attacks and deaths at the Ann Arbor VA hospital. A surviving victim had identified the woman who poisoned him and killed multiple patients as Pia. This was the nickname for 29-year-old Filipina Narciso, a nurse who'd emigrated from the Philippines to help with staffing shortages and had been transferred to the Ann Arbor VA ICU just a few months prior. Further confirming the lead, the FBI apparently found that nearly all of the poisonings had occurred during Narciso's shifts. Worse, when Narciso entered the room, for the victim to ID a couple days after he'd recovered, his heart rate sped up and he immediately recognized her. But as authorities were ready to zero in on Narciso, a new witness account came through. Another victim, who we'll call George, faintly recalled someone entering his room and injecting his IV with the substance shortly before his respiratory arrest. To help him remember details, the FBI brought in psychiatrist Dr. Herbert Spiegel to place George under a hypnotic trance to help him retrieve memories from the night of his attack. We know today that hypnosis is controversial and may not reveal the exact truth, but at the time, the FBI considered it a valid method. Perhaps they expected George to describe Filipina Narciso as the nurse who'd come in and poisoned his IV. But instead, he identified 30-year-old nurse Leonora Perez, another young Filipino immigrant. It remains unclear just how reliable this was, first due to the hypnosis and also due to racial bias. As Filipinos in Michigan, Narciso and Perez didn't exactly have luck on their side. 
Much of the white American middle class carried racial biases against Asian Americans going back to World War II, as well as the fact that many American neighborhoods and workplaces had long been all white. In addition, the U.S. government had long upheld prejudice against Asians. Internment camps incarcerated Japanese Americans during World War II. Exclusionary policies banned Asian immigration and naturalization multiple times in the 1800s and 1900s. Past regulations left many U.S. citizens to sit in the comfort of their own privilege, seeing Asians as others. Even in the 1970s, Narciso and Perez faced language barriers, limited access to affordable housing, and hurdles in joining the workforce. Worse, the veterans they cared for had spent years fighting wars against Asian people, whether it be Japan, Korea, or the latest war in Vietnam. They'd essentially been trained to see anyone who looked like Narciso or Perez as the enemy. All of this raised the question, were these two women accused of murder because of their race? The FBI stood by the fact that when a third victim identified Perez, he chose her out of a lineup of 18 women where 15 were of Asian descent, though it's possible immigrant workers were being disproportionately screened. Adding to this pressure cooker, the FBI was under significant public pressure after their embarrassing bungling of the Patty Hearst kidnapping case. They needed some good PR and would move quick to get it. So they pinned Narciso and Perez as prime suspects. The nurses were pulled from direct patient care as the investigation continued. Though officials claimed the transfers weren't an indication of guilt, both women were likely terrified. But they had to keep working to provide for their families. Narciso accepted an administrative role at the hospital. Meanwhile, Perez moved to Chicago, Illinois, and took up work at the Lakeside VA Hospital. Meanwhile, from August to October 1975, the FBI thoroughly reviewed medical records and continued interviewing both patients and staff. But all roads seemed to lead back to Narciso and Perez. They believed the women's stories didn't add up. That fall, Filipina Narciso and Leonora Perez were subpoenaed to appear in front of a federal grand jury in Detroit, Michigan. Both women maintained their innocence from the beginning, but it did little for their case. The pair were formally indicted on June 16, 1976, for five counts of murder, ten counts of poisoning, and one count of conspiracy. When they were arrested, the story quickly became national news. The media tumbled into a partisan frenzy. Some activist groups immediately labeled the investigation racist, convinced that the Bureau had done a sloppy job of targeting immigrants with little financial or social power. And as criticisms emerged, ugly findings broke. Allegedly, during an FBI interview, one poisoned patient referred to Narciso and Perez with racial slurs, furthering the theory that racial bias influenced the identifications. Additionally, it seems Narciso and Perez were both questioned without translators, 
even though neither was a native English speaker. Doing a high-pressure interview in one's second language could explain inconsistencies in the stories. And then, the straw that broke the camel's back. One of the men who'd gone on record accusing Narciso and Perez died before the start of the trial. And while the prosecution had a videotaped deposition from the other eyewitnesses, they ultimately decided to drop his name from the indictment. Some experts later suggested this was because the witness's deposition was filled with inconsistencies and would have actually hurt the government's case. The FBI was now armed only with circumstantial evidence. But they proceeded with what they had. Jury selection for U.S. v. Narciso and Perez began on March 1, 1977. The FBI was confident they had the killers until March 13, 1977. Two weeks into the case, the Detroit Free Press reported a confession to the Ann Arbor VA murders from another nurse. Her name was Betty Yakim. She'd worked as a nursing supervisor at the hospital, and in February 1977, she admitted to her psychiatrist that she was the Ann Arbor VA murderer. She claimed that the guilt of watching her subordinates take the fall was too much to bear. Shortly after, she died by suicide. The news set the media and activists ablaze. Someone else had confessed, yet Narciso and Perez were still being tried for the murders. On June 16, 1977, a new witness's testimony only further stoked the fires of controversy. While a patient at the Ann Arbor VA, he claimed he'd seen a man wearing a green surgical gown enter his hospital room on August 15, 1975. He awoke to that same man pulling at his IV and within minutes lost the ability to breathe. Other witnesses claimed to have seen a male figure in green standing near patients who had respiratory arrests soon after. Though Narciso and Perez filed a motion to dismiss the case, it was denied. The trial proceeded through July 1977. After 15 days of deliberation, the grand jury declared 31-year-old Filipina Narciso and 33-year-old Leonora Perez guilty of poisoning and conspiring to poison patients. They each faced a potential life sentence. While they waited for the sentencing date to arrive, Narciso and Perez demanded a retrial. Defense attorneys claimed the women had been victimized by the most outrageous grand jury process imaginable. Activists circulated a petition and marched at the courthouse in support, and the pressure eventually worked. In December of 1977, the judge ordered a new trial. But when the new U.S. attorney reviewed the case in early 1978, he decided that there was insufficient evidence for a retrial. Narciso and Perez were officially free. However, no other suspects were pursued. It's possible Betty Yakim did commit the crimes. She'd admitted guilt before she died, after all. 
Then again, maybe it was the man in green. Officially, the ten murders remain unsolved. Their families and those who survived the attacks have never seen justice. It's possible a modern crime scene examination might have solved this mystery more effectively, but it's hard to say who poisoned the victims of the Ann Arbor Hospital murders. It's absolutely conceivable that bias played a big role here in the condemnation of these migrant nurses. Having personally lived through this period in history, I remember witnessing this prejudice leveled against my Asian and African-American medical school classmates. While times have certainly shifted in a positive direction, racial bias and profiling still occurs in the medical field. It's unfortunately a sad reality that tends to still permeate through many professional arenas. After their releases, Narciso and Perez each quietly moved on. They both continued nursing and, in 1980, each became a citizen of the United States. Their legacy lives inside the cautionary tale of misguided judgment. While it can be tempting to connect the dots, it's never helpful to bind them with bias. Had this case not been so publicized, it's quite possible that both Filipina Narciso and Leonora Perez might still be serving time today for crimes they didn't commit. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much, Alistair. For more information on the Ann Arbor Hospital murders, among the many sources we used, we found Paralyzing Summer, the true story of the Ann Arbor VA hospital poisonings and deaths by Zibby O'Neill and S. Martin Lindenauer, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Asia Gallo, edited by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hi, it's Carter, here to remind you that a very special evening with crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler is just days away. It's an event celebrating the release of ParCast's first book, Colts, and you can be a part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles on July 13th and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and more. Plus, all ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. This has all the makings of being the true crime event of the year, so don't miss out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. 
That's parcast.com slash Colts to sign up today.